1: Looking back over all of my years reading comics, two things have remained constant. My love for Mike Allred and my love for Superman. Now, if only those two loves would combine now and again, that that would be pretty cool. (laughs)
0: speeding bullet more powerful than a locomotive able to leap tall buildings at a single bound look up in the sky it's a bird it's a
1: plane oh uh <clears throat> i guess that would be me my name is stephen i apologize for that but i think you'll find this a bit more interesting And welcome to an all new episode of Just Another Fanboy, the podcast that's fallen a bit behind. And you know what? That's okay. I'm your host. My name is Steven. And today I want to talk about a giant sized issue that hit the shelves just three weeks ago. I'm talking about Superman Space Age issue number one. This was published by DC Comics on July 26th, 2022. It was written by Mark Russell with art by Mike Allred, colors by Laura Allred, and the letters were by Dave Sharp. Now, this sucker is 80 pages long, and it has a cover price of $9.99. But before we get into that, I neglected to mention an anniversary that we hit just last week. I mean, I really didn't record anything new last week. You got two Classic episodes last week. So I really didn't have, um, well, I don't want to say I didn't have an opportunity because I did record intros to both of those episodes, but I just, I was kind of out of it last week and I didn't think about it. But on August 8th, 2019, I officially relaunched Just Another Fanboy. Now, if you're not aware of the history, I used to podcast back from 2006 to 2009, and that podcast was called just Another Fanboy. Those are the episodes that you're getting every Thursday with the J.A.F. Classics. Um, and then I was out of podcasting for about a decade. I came back in September of 2018 with something completely different. But then I, I, I brought Just Another Fanboy back on August 8th. Now, it was the trailer that landed on August 8th, 2019 and the first official episode actually landed on August the 13th. So this is our our 3 year anniversary this month for round 2 of just another fanboy and I just I wanted to uh just kind of wanted to point that out before we got into this book. All right, so before I really start talking about how I felt reading Superman Space Age number 1, let me go through or let me read to you the official solicitation or description or, or whatever you want to call it that's, that's over on the DC website. It goes as such. Meet Clark Kent, a young reporter who has just learned that the world will soon come to an end. And then they put crisis on infinite earths in parentheses. And there is nothing he can do to save it. Sounds like a job for his alter ego, Superman. After years of standing idle, the young man from Krypton defies the wishes of his fathers to come out to the world as the first superhero of the space age. As each decade passes and each new danger emerges, he wonders if this is the one that will kill him and everyone he loves. Superman realizes that even good intentions are not without their backlash as the world around him transforms into a place as determined to destroy itself as he is to save it. Uniting the critically acclaimed writer Mark Russell from One Star Squadron and the Flintstones and Eisner-winning Mike Allred from Silver Surfer and Bowie, Stardust, Ray Guns, and Moon Age Daydreams. And they didn't include Madman, which is uh, a, a real sad thing for DC. Shame on you. Anyway, uniting these two dudes for the first time, this series promises fans an unforgettable journey through U.S. history and Culture, starring our beloved characters. So the issue opens in 1985. Superman's out in space. He's looking down at the Earth. The Earth is glowing. It has what appears to be like red, I don't know, glowy flames or something coming off of it. There there are meteors falling through and and burning up in the atmosphere all around. Superman flies to the Fortress of Solitude. There he meets uh, Lois Lane and... Their son, Jonathan. So, with this issue, it's established here that by 1985, Superman is is married. Clark Kent is married to Lois Lane, and they have a, a a young boy, Jonathan. Now, Lois tells Clark basically when when he gets into the the Fortress of Solitude that um it's happening. He's all like, "I'm aware. Have I ever told you how much I love you?" She says every day, and he says good. And then little Jonathan comes in, who looks like he's maybe five or six. And he says, Dad, everything's going to be OK, right? And Superman tells him, no, Jonathan, it's not. And that's all right. And they there seems to be uh, almost a, a living quarters set up here in the uh, Fortress of Solitude, which um, has photos, family photos. There's an, an Emmy that I'm assuming maybe Lois won at some point. Um, or Clark did. I, I don't know. But Lois was always the more famous reporter of the two of them. So I'm going to assume that it's Lois. You can see a photo of of their wedding. Um, you can see a photo of young Jonathan with Clark's parents, Martha and Jonathan, who the, the young boy is named after. So I'm assuming that in this reality, uh, by this point in 1985, Clark and Lois and Jonathan are living in the Fortress of Solitude, and the way they react, the way Superman and Lois reacts to whatever's happening to the world, which seems to be crumbling all around them, this is this, this is something that they expected. They were they were waiting for this, and maybe that's why there's a, a living quarters set up in the Fortress of Solitude because they they knew that the end of the world was coming, and they came to the Fortress of Solitude to basically spend their, their last moments on Earth together, I, I'm assuming. Um, I should probably say that this does appear to be a out-of-continuity story. It doesn't have any kind of tag on the cover or the inside cover that tells us that this is an Elseworlds book. But based on a few of the things that happen in this issue, this, this it's got to be an Elseworlds story. This is not a an uh, in-continuity story. It is set pre-crisis. Um, as the solicitation states, uh, we are coming to the end of the world and it does appear to be, um, crisis on infinite earths. And the one thing that's different from this story over the, the actual crisis on infinite Earths story is that Clark, uh, appears to be aware of, or he was given some kind of foreknowledge. He, he know, he knew that this was coming. So as the world's crumbling around them, the, the, the three of them are, are basically kneeling together on the floor uh, Clark has his arms around both Jonathan and Lois. And then we go to 1963. So we go backwards in time to Smallville, November 1963. And there's a, a lot of great moments here that most of this book takes place in the 60s. We, we open in 1985 to the, the beginning of the end of the world. And then it takes us back to the 60s to kind of tell us how we got there. We don't quite get to that point in this issue. I don't know how many issues are in this series. Um, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but I didn't I didn't look that up for this conversation. But this is a, a pre-crisis world. Um, when we open in 63, Clark is still living at home. Um, he has gra- graduated high school. Apparently, he's helping his father on the farm, and he's very conflicted about his powers, both he and his father are are conflicted about his powers. Um, the opening scene here in 1963 with Clark and his father have them gathering up bales of hay from the field on the farm. The 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 hay baler has already gone through and and uh, you know baled that hay, and now they have a, a, a fields stretching out around them with these hay bales that they need to go around with their truck and collect. And so they get a truckload. And Clark, of course, mentions that he he can have it all done. He could he you you can still see like hundreds of hay bales out there in the fields. And Jonathan, his dad is telling them, All right, that's that's enough for today because they've they've loaded up the the back of their big flatbed truck. And Clark mentions to him that he could have the rest done by himself before Jonathan got to the porch. And Jonathan says, done quick or done right. And that's kind of a uh That's kind of a theme in this book, the idea behind um, preparation or, or doing something right or leaping in with both feet without looking. And based on Jonathan's comment here, done quick or done right, Jonathan is an advocate for preparing, you know, doing it right, you know, taking the time to make sure it's done correctly so you don't have to do it again. Clark then talks to him, his dad, about his powers, how he feels that he shouldn't be there on the farm, that being there is a waste of time. Uh, with his powers, he should be out there in the world, uh, saving the world, basically. And that's when Jonathan tells him a story of the a moment or a uh, uh, part of his past when when Jonathan was a soldier in the Pacific fighting in World War II. And so we get a flashback going back to 1944 when Jonathan and his fellow soldiers, his platoon or his whatever, were sent to help liberate the island of Saipan. And it's there that he basically talks about how um, the war should have been over by that point. Ultimately, it was, you know, the, the, the Americans have won um, or the, the the allies have won, uh, but they learned quickly because after a, a lot of bombing and fighting, there there were no um, man made structures left. There were no homes, there were no buildings left on Saipan, and so the 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 Japanese people and the soldiers had retreated into these caves. And so when the American soldiers would come try to get them out to, to get them to surrender, this is, they, they learn that the Japanese soldier does not surrender. Uh, the Japanese soldier will, um, fight to the death, whether they have to, um, blow themselves up to take out the enemy soldiers around them or, or, or whatever. They, they will die fighting. They will never give up. And, when they would come to a cave, when these American soldiers, Jonathan and his fellow fellow soldiers would come to a cave to try to clear it, one of the things that they looked out for were the light from burning cigarettes. The Japanese soldiers, knowing that their time was up, that the American soldiers have arrived, this this is going to be their final battle, they will die fighting, they would smoke cigarettes like their their last cigarette. And so if the, the American soldiers came to uh, the mouth of a cave and they could see these burning ashes, you know, the, the, the burning ends, the red cherries of, of cigarettes, they would know that those were Japanese soldiers in there and they would open fire. Because it wasn't just soldiers hiding in the caves. It was also Japanese uh, citizens. Um, but they come to one cave. They're, they're shouting into the cave for, you know, whoever's in there to come out. There's a flicker of light, a flame, uh, a small flame erupts in the darkness and Jonathan opens fire. And it was a little boy, little Japanese boy with the lighter. And Jonathan, uh, in his panic, shot and killed him. And he tells Clark, they say that you see the face of everyone you've ever killed when you close your eyes to go to sleep. But the truth is worse. After a while, you don't see them at all. The dead disappear because we need them to. Because that's the price of survival. The price we pay to make room for the living. He explains to Clark that it's it was after that that they shipped out. He he comes back home. He was home for just a few months, and that's when little baby Clark arrives from space. And he tells Clark for the first time that the the, the ship, the little rocket ship that baby Clark was in, was not the only ship or capsule or whatever um, that arrived at that time. There was a second one that, that flew off into the distance and... He has no idea where it went, but he told the story to Clark to 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 basically tell him that after all the bloodshed, uh, as as he puts it, I just know that after all the bloodshed and horror I'd experienced, you were the sign from heaven that I need or that I needed, and I still need it. It's after their conversation when they they go inside and find Martha watching TV that they learn uh, through the news that JFK has been assassinated. There the, the country goes on high alert. We learn that um Lex Luthor and Bruce Wayne are both defense contractors working with the American government, the American military. Um, and this is where when I said, you know, despite the fact that they don't tell you on the cover or or on the inside cover that this is an Elseworld story, the the depiction of Bruce Wayne in this story alone tells you that this is this is not in continuity because not once Br- Bruce Wayne is in this issue a number of times and not once do they mention uh his parents dying uh he does not appear to be training to to fight crime on the streets of Gotham he is a defense contractor we learned that the the bat suit and the batmobile ultimately came from designs that uh Wayne Enterprises and Bruce Wayne had des- ha- had created to uh, sell to the American military as uh, basically uh, supersuits and all-terrain vehicles. We also learn here that with the assassination of JFK, um, the Daily Planet, of course, the newsroom is, is a big scramble, and Perry White is freaking out because he needs to get somebody to Dallas to report on this. But all the planes have been grounded. There's this now this threat of nuclear war um, America is worried that the Soviets will take advantage of this time of weakness and attack. And so they've grounded all commercial airlines. Um, there are, of course, Air Force jets out, one of them piloted by Hal Jordan. Um, just looking, just watching, making sure that, you know, keeping America safe. And so Perry, again, Perry White, the, um, editor in chief or whatever his title is of the Daily Planet, he's, He's freaking out because he needs to get somebody to Dallas. And there's kind of a great moment here where Jimmy is whispering to one of the reporters, geez, you think Mr. White would be broken up? The president just died. And and the reporter tells Jimmy, that's how a journalist mourns, Jimmy. So Perry can't send anybody, can't send one of his reporters to Dallas because all the planes have been grounded. And so he asks, do we have anyone on assignment in Texas? And he's told that Lois Lane is there. And Lois Lane, at this point in her career, is not you know a a famous investigative reporter. When one of the newspaper guys tells Perry that it's that that it's Lois Lane in Dallas, Perry says, "Ah, crab meat. The cooks and cranks writer." And so, Lois Lane, at this point, she writes for they they don't really say what the I don't think they call the column in the actual paper the cooks and cranks. It's probably more of a uh, slice of life type column that tends to focus on people who believe in the supernatural and whatnot. Because when he tells, you know, when he learns that Lois is there, he, he, he tells his people, you know, get her on the horn. She just became our point person on the uh, Kennedy assassination. And then we see Lois, she's interviewing a woman who has a bunch of poodles in her house. And Lois is asking, so are all your poodles psychic, Mrs. Krantz? And Mrs. Krantz says, oh, no, just champagne and Chablis. So it's just just two of the what appear to be five poodles are psychic. And so that's that's the kind of stuff that Lois is writing about at this point. But being that she's the only one at the Daily Planet that's in Dallas, she gets, you know, she writes the story and it's and that's what makes her famous. That's what puts her on the map. And she stops being uh, a kooks and cranks. Writer and starts writing the big stories. Well, as Clark and his parents are watching everything unfold on the news, getting what information they can from the news at this time, because you got to remember back in the sixties, they didn't have cable. There, there were, there were no 24 hour news networks. Um, Clark decides he's got to do something. There, there are, uh, Soviet subs, um, out in the Atlantic. The news, um, states that it's unclear whether they're just there to observe or a, as they state here in the book, take part in a preemptive attack in a moment of national weakness. And so Clark decides he has to do something. Now, he's not become Superman at this point. He's just he seems to be just figuring out his powers. He knows that he's super strong and he knows that he can fly. But that seems to be about it. So he uh, in his overalls and T-shirt, he he, he he flies away. His father up to this point seems seems to have been uh, kind of dissuading Clark from taking this kind of action from from becoming this kind of person. Uh, it's it's actually kind of it's I'll say this about Mark Russell. He's really good about combining uh, the humor with the drama because there's this kind of a funny moment when Clark is taking off from the front porch. His mother is running to him and she yells, Clark, at least take a jacket. And and Jonathan tells her, come on, Martha, he's got to find his own way. We can't protect him from the world anymore. And then he says something that I, I found kind of ominous and we can't protect the world from him. So they don't clarify within the rest of this issue what that's supposed to mean. I, I kind of get the meaning that one of the reasons that Jonathan has been trying to hold Clark back is that he's afraid that Clark, um, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't trust in the, the lessons he's taught Clark, uh, as he has. You know, been parenting him. You know, as Clark's grown up, as he's been his dad, he doesn't trust his own parenting. That Clark will always do the right thing. That Clark is capable of doing some very horrific things. Uh, Or, or maybe he's uh, just—I don't know. Maybe he just doesn't think the world is ready for him, and that's what he means. I I don't know. I think it's—I think that can be up for debate. But anyway, we go over to the Atlantic where the, the Soviet subs are at, Hal Jordan is in his jet and he's flying over and he's, he's just keeping an eye out for things. And that's when Clark shows up. And there's a, a moment here where he flies into a bird, which is kind of funny, but Clark only manages to make things worse. So there's kind of this tense standoff. The, the Soviet subs, nuclear subs are out there in the Atlantic. They are within striking distance of the United States. Um, tensions are high Hal Jordan, again, he's out there in his jet, but he has not crossed over into Soviet airspace yet. Um, He's he's on the edge. He's he's just keeping an eye out. He's in, you know, outside of Soviet airspace. But Clark comes racing in. They don't quite know what it is they're seeing. It's just something on on radar. It's very erratic. And the Soviets are in their sub and they're, they're you know, we've Identified a, you know, a, a, a flying object that's flying erratically and it is, um, entering, it's about to enter Soviet airspace, um, and it could be above the Kremlin in a half an hour. And so the decision is made on this submarine to attack, to fire the, their, their missiles at the United States. And Hal Jordan seeing, um, this flying man heading toward Soviet airspace, knows that whoever this may be, however unbelievable it may be that there's a man in overalls and a t-shirt flying, uh, that if he crosses over into Soviet airspace, that, that bad things are going to happen, that, that, uh, that a war will start. So he shoots Clark out of the sky when the, and, and so when the Soviets see that the, the American fighter jet has shot down whatever it was in the sky, they decide to stand down and everybody backs off. So as we go through the rest of this issue, ba- basically what the, the issue is leading to is um, we're, we go through the 60s. I don't know if we quite hit the 70s by the end of this. I think we're, we, we remain in the 60s during this this issue. But we have we kind of follow Lois around as she um, talks to people who were there in Dealey Plaza when JFK was assassinated. She writes her article. She starts to become famous. Um, and then she starts, she, she's there in Mississippi during, uh, one of the civil rights marches with, with the Freedom Riders and John Lewis, and she is arrested right along with them. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Cause it kind of bounces back and forth between Lois's story, uh, Clark's story, and then Lex and Bruce's story because Lex and Bruce, again, they're both Military contractors. Lex is trying to salvage this contract that he had with the American military, and he wants to. He wants his team to come up with ideas. Um, there's a moment in the issue where Lex and and Bruce Wayne both pitch their ideas to uh, a group of military generals. Uh, Bruce's idea, of course, is these 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 suits that he has created. There, he he almost. The, the whole Bruce Wayne story here is almost very reminiscent of Iron Man it, it it's less Batman and more Iron Man I I haven't quite decided whether I like this interpretation of Bruce or not it it fits the story uh, I'm not quite sure how Bruce Wayne would fit into this the 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 story in this first issue without that um but that's that's the way they have Bruce Wayne in this story he's a military contractor he's he's uh he and Lex are each trying to win this contract. And so Bruce's pitch is, you know, I've got these, uh, these suits that the, your soldiers can wear and it will, uh, the, you know, it's body armor and they will have utility belts that will have various implements in them that they can use to, to fight the war. His whole idea is, um, with the whole idea of the, the nuclear deterrent that any, conflicts in the future are going to be ground-based. They're, they're going to be um they're the military conflicts are not going to be solved by nuclear weapons. It's just not going to happen because the 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 one side will be afraid to launch theirs because they know the other side will launch theirs and wipe each other out. And so what's the point? Uh Lex's pitch, however, is that he feels that it's only a matter of time before the Soviets launch their uh, nuclear arsenal at America, and so he is pitching an idea of uh, an underground community to survive um, nuclear war so that they, c- the American dream will live on and they can come back up after uh, all the radiation has gone away and, and, and all that stuff. And Lex ends up winning the contract because he has an in. He has, of course, bribed a one of the, the generals who has a gambling problem because uh, that's the way Lex runs things. As all this is going on, we also have Clark's story when he's shot down by Hal Jordan he's somewhere uh in the Arctic um and something starts to to kind of pull at him. We we learn that this other object that had flown over Jonathan and Martha when they found Clark, it was ultimately it was the 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 Kryptonian um repository of all Kryptonian knowledge and um the fortress of solitude it it lands in the arctic and the idea here is 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 that because because clark follows this signal of some sort that this object is 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 giving off and he comes across the fortress of solitude and and once he enters um his kryptonian dna is is scanned and a holographic image of his kryptonian father uh jor-el uh appears and tells Clark about his, you know, who he is. You're, you're from the planet Krypton. I'm a scientist. The planet blew up. Um, this, this, the craft that brought you was also programmed, um, to create this fortress, which is also a laboratory and it's also a home. And he, in this version, Jor-El is the one that basically he, he provides Clark with the Superman costume. He says, here's this, uh, suit made out of, uh, Kry- Krypton's most industrial, industru- Here's this suit made out of Krypton's most indestructible fabric. It's emblazoned with the family seal. Um, he didn't. You you kind of learn here that that Jor El didn't send Clark to Earth primarily to save his life because Krypton was blowing up. I mean that, that. I mean that's why he was sent. But Earth was chosen because he knew that under Earth's yellow sun, that Clark would have these 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 superpowers and that he could use them to. Help Earth, uh, that Earth is it's heading down a bad path. And here's Jor-El's chance to save a world by sending his only son, the the only surviving Kryptonian to, to, to Earth to, to help guide and, and, and help the planet so that it doesn't um, destroy itself like Krypton did he he also starts telling Clark about the different powers that that he because at this point the assumption is that is, is that if Clark has found the Fortress of Solitude then he has fully come into his powers but the only thing Clark knows is that he can fly and that he's super strong and it's here he learns that he he has he he has heat vision um and, and a, a towering scientific intellect which he was not aware of um but he's given the suit uh Clark at that point he's just I'm not ready for this. And he leaves and he he goes back home to Smallville. From there, we move to 64, 1964. Clark is boarding a train in Smallville to go to Metropolis. He and his parents have decided that, you know, he's explained to his parents what he saw in the Fortress of Solitude. uh, and they have decided that rather than just putting the costume on and getting out there and doing his thing, that he's gonna move to Metropolis, become a reporter, and through that, he will learn more about. The world that he's living in now. And, um, through that, he will learn better, uh, how to save the world. So the idea here is to go to Metropolis and wait and listen, uh, figure things out. So the, the, the Jonathan Kent, um, do you want it done quick or you don't want it done right? And in this case, he wants it done right. And so you, you're not going to just leap into this. You need to take the time to figure it out. Clark is kind of taken under the wing of Lois Lane. I really like that dynamic where, where Lois is, she is, uh, Perry introduces her as his protege and she ends up teaching Clark a lot about being a reporter and getting the story. And Clark's the one who ends up being put on the whole kooks and cranks column. And it's through that, that he meets this guy in this bar, goes to, to interview him, uh, who we learn is pariah from, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and his story is very much the same as it was in the in the Crisis story, the proper story, where he is trying to develop an antimatter fuel that would help transform his his world, his version of Earth. The other scientists told him not to do it; that he was being reckless and it's dangerous. He locked himself into an antimatter chamber uh, to 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 get it done, and um, he's the one who uh, awakens the Anti Monitor, who is then set on his path of eliminating the multiverse, all the Earths of the multiverse, and replacing it with a, a, an antimatter universe. And Pariah is telling Clark basically that, um, and it's really interesting because he's not in his Pariah suit that he wears throughout the crisis. He's, he's in, uh, he's got like a sweater vest on and a white and a, and a button up shirt and a jacket, but it's the same color scheme. And he's even wearing his jacket. He doesn't have his arms through his sleeves. His that his jacket is his suit jacket is just a, or his sports jacket is just hanging off his shoulders like a cape. I thought that was very clever, but he, he tells Clark that look, your earth only has about 20 years left. Um, this is my curse. This is what happened. This is why, uh, why your earth is doomed. There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and I, I'm just kind of here to warn you. And while Clark doesn't really believe him, there's a part of him that I think he tells Lois later, you know, he says, because Lois says, don't, don't tell me you're starting to believe all these people that you're talking to. And he goes, oh, no, I don't believe any of it. But this one guy, what he told me was crazy. But he said it was such conviction that it's hard to dismiss. And as they're talking, uh, there's a TV on in the background with playing uh, the, the Ed Sullivan show. And he says to to Lois that the 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 this guy Pariah um, had also made some other crazy predictions. Um, For example, he said that um, the the America would be invaded by by insects. He's like, I can't remember quite what he said. He the 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 America would would be invaded by insects like uh, earwigs or something. And that's when the Beatles come on Ed Sullivan. So it's obvious that what uh, Pariah had told Clark was that the Beatles, there, there would be you know this British invasion of the Beatles in America. That was one of his, his predictions, but Clark took it for something else. So as this story progresses, um, and we, we go through the 60s, um, Clark is learning how to use his powers at the Fortress of Solitude. The, the hologram of his father is kind of an interactive program that is teaching him uh, Kryptonian history, and and teaching him how to use his powers there's this really great moment that i alluded to earlier in which where where uh lois goes to mississippi where uh governor wallace is he's running for president and he is a big uh segregation guy he's a big southern dude and he you know he he was a racist and so uh, a busload of um the the freedom riders come to mississippi to protest and uh Lois is there with them, and so she gets arrested with them. But there's there's a really great there's there's one page that basically whenever you're following Clark's story, you're reading journal entries. When when he boards the train to go to Metropolis, his mother gives him a journal, and so what we're the the, the narration of Clark's story are are journal entries from this journal. Lois's story is is the the news the newspaper articles that she's writing, and so for this one, she says. As Americans, we talk about being American as if we all agree on what that means. But the truth is that some judge truth and justice by how well they support the American way, while others judge the American way by how well it stands up for truth and justice. And so for those two, um, those two sides, of course, the, the people that, you know, when she says the, some judge truth and justice by how well they support the American way, we're seeing in that panel uh, Confederate flags, um, as you know, in the train station as she's getting off the train, and then the, the the others who judge the American way by how well it stands up for truth and justice. That's when we're seeing the the, the bus with the Freedom Riders and uh, police in riot gear coming to to stop them, and and she continues. For some, freedom is simply the name they've given to their way of life, and we see a guy with a. Confederate flag behind him, um, giving a speech and a poster for Governor Wallace that uh, says segregation now, segregation forever. She continues, but for others, freedom is what they call their struggle to survive. And that is two panels of the the Freedom Riders bus on fire and the police beating um, these black protesters. So like I said, Lois is arrested with the Freedom Riders. She's thrown into jail. With uh, three black men, she uh, states that um, she thinks that they, that these cops, these southern cops, put her in this cell with these three black men as a way to uh, to scare her, thinking that she'd be terrified. This little white girl in a in a, in a cell with uh, these big three big black men. But she turns, you know, she she talks to him and she gets their side of the story. And it's it's uh, she talks to John Lewis, who she asks, "Do you feel like Americans?" have become too addicted to pleasure and popular culture to care about your struggle. I think they're really doing a good job here of taking uh, what happened then and um, equating it to what's going on today. And I kind of read this as young people today, for example, um, because of the internet, you see a lot of stuff on on social media, how um, this is the worst that's ever gotten, right? With racism and um people in power trying to pass these laws that make it harder for minorities to vote and to to you know to really bring about the 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 white power movement and it it really hasn't gotten worse it hasn't gotten a lot better this we're we're dealing the, the stuff we're dealing with today is the same stuff they dealt with back in the 60s um and stretching all the way back uh, but it feels worse today because of social media, because it's all over social media, whereas you only knew about a lot of what was going on back then if you were there to witness it, ultimately. You know, if you were in your, you know, I, I grew up in a uh, in an all-white town in rural Kansas, and uh, growing up in a town like that, probably back in the 60s, you probably had no idea what was going on with the civil rights movement, because um, unless you were watching the news and reading newspapers and and, uh, you know, growing up, you probably didn't, didn't understand that a lot of that was going on. Nowadays, everybody knows because it's all, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And I'm not saying that to belittle what's going on now because what's going on now is horrible. Um, it's more like it's just, it's sometimes I just, I think about what the country is going through today and I think about, uh, stories, um, from this time back in the sixties and, and even stretching all the way back to, to even the old West. The the expansion of the West and how I just get kind of depressed that that not a lot has changed. Now I'm I'm going to get political for a second. I remember reading something f- uh, from President Obama who addressed that very thing. That if you look through history, you think about what's happening today, and you you go through history and you you feel like uh, nothing has ever changed, nothing has gotten better. But really, despite the fact that. Everything that's going on today in America with racism and the white power movement and and nationalists and all that BS—it's actually th- things are actually a bit better today than they were back in the '60s. You know, it's—I think—I think the way President Obama put it is—is a is, uh, we we are moving forward. It's just that for every two steps we move forward, we move a step back. So it's 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 taking a, a long time. It's not something that's going to be fixed in one generation. It's, it's probably going to be a number of generations in the future before, uh, hopefully we, we, you know, this, this, this kind of crap is, is, is eradicated. And even then there's probably still going to be small pockets of it. It's probably gonna, uh, you know, gonna have to get to, uh, when Star Trek comes about before some of this stuff is wiped away. But I, I just, I really thought that, that for, for me reading this, um, the way it was written while they weren't saying, see, this is exactly that. This is the same kind of stuff we're dealing with now. You, it, uh, you could read between the lines and pick up on that. Anyway, John Lewis basically tells, uh, Lois this story about how, uh, years ago when he participated in the lunch counter sit-ins when, you know, black people were not allowed to go into certain restaurants and and sit at the lunch counter. And, and so, um, civil rights activists, they would, they would, they would gather in these buses and they'd go to the South and they would all go into, you know, just this group of, of five to 10, uh, uh, black men and women would go into these diners and they would sit at the counter knowing that they wouldn't be served, uh, but doing it in, in form of protest, but knowing that they weren't going to be served beforehand, they, they went to, uh, uh, like a Chinese restaurant and basically ate their fill and so, when they would go to these sit-ins and they would be arrested, uh, beaten and arrested and locked up overnight, he says, uh, when we went to the lunch counter, as expected, we were beaten and arrested, locked up overnight, but as we sat there in jail, I kept thinking about that delicious meal and how I planned to go back to that restaurant when I got out. Um, now, in the meantime, Clark shows up to bail Lois out, but the cops tell Clark that they they don't have any women in in, in their jail cells. And... Clark using his x-ray vision can see Lois back there and he's like, "Well, would you mind checking again?" and and the cop is very much, "Boy, you got your answer. Show some respect for the law." And so Clark, of course, he, you know, being Clark Kent, mild-mannered Clark Kent, he goes, "Of course. Thank you, gentlemen." And he leaves, but he comes back that night and he 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 rips the back wall of the cell, you know, he, he tears a hole in the back wall of the cell and and save in, you know, the John Lewis and the Freedom Riders and, and Lois are, are then freed. Um, we then moved to 19 uh, to to uh, Coast City Naval Base in 1965, and we learned that frickin' Lex Luthor trying to get this uh, military contract in the end was not about making money. What he does, and it's this really, I mean, in this this version of Lex, they don't they don't beat around the bush. They prove to you exactly how evil Lex is. He, uh, using a, using a, like, basically a TV camera, uh, he's communicating back to the generals that he is out on a, uh, let's see the Monachini Atoll in the Pacific, a thousand miles offshore from where the, the generals are, and that he is getting ready to go into their prototype underground bunk, bunker, bunker, and they have, the, the military has given him, given him to hydrogen bombs to use for their testing and that he is so confident that their underground bunkers will work that he is there on site he will be in the bunker when they drop one of these hydrogen bombs and that's how you know that's how confident he is that his his plans will work but we learn that it's all just an act he's not actually there he's in metropolis he's using a fake background and the, the bomb that he drops is, is dropped on the Coast City Naval Base. And he kills everybody within the military base and the two million people who lived in the surrounding city. And he does this to make the American public think that um, because the, the, the generals that he was speaking to, they were on this naval, naval base. So they, they were killed as well. Uh, Sam Lane was one of them, uh, Lois Lane's father. And he tells his people that he did this so that the, the, the rest of the American military that were not at the naval base will assume that this was a first strike by the Soviet Union. They will launch, uh, the, uh, U.S. nuclear arsenal at, at the Soviet Union. Uh, the so- Soviet Union will then, um, respond in kind. Uh, the, the world will be destroyed through nuclear war, but Lex and his people Will survive in their underground bunkers, and then once the world is ready for them to come up, they can come up and uh, start a whole new civilization the way they want it to be run. So the world learns that Coast City is then destroyed by this hydrogen weapon, and everything escalates from there. Um, Bruce Wayne learns that it was Lex Luthor that that does this, so he puts on the the, the pro the one of the suits. That he had created for the military, but he's had this customized to to, to look a bit like a bat, and uh, the vehicle, uh, the all terrain vehicle, he's had customized so it's more of a streamline, so it's more of a streamline street racer, so the the Batmobile, and so he's going to go after Lex. Lois is headed to the the blast site, and Clark goes to uh, the Fortress of Solitude to to put his suit on, and this is where we kind of learn. I rem- well, wh- I remember reading about this 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 book a couple of months back and talking about how um, one of the purposes behind this book is there, there's been all these stories over the last few years about how people don't quite understand the purpose behind Superman. It's the reason why there hasn't been a great Superman movie in the last 15 to 20 years is because audiences, uh, you know, Warner Brothers can't figure out how to make Superman um, relevant and can't figure out how to make Superman relatable. And so this story is supposed to help, you know, well, not help. It's, you read this story and you kind of understand what Superman's place is within the DC universe and why he is such a, such a great character. And so as he's getting ready to put the suit on, we, we read from Clark's journal. I've learned a lot about this planet in the last couple of years from people I respect. And what they've taught me is this. I've learned a lot about this planet in the last couple of years from people I respect. And what they've taught me is this. The world doesn't wait for you to be ready. My mistake was never in wanting to save the world before I was ready. It was in thinking I could do it alone. The people who do the most good in this world are not the strongest, the smartest, the most prepared, but simply those who show up. And so that's when Clark dons the suit and he's going to go stop. This uh, oncoming nuclear war. Now, in the middle of this, Hal Jordan is in his jet fighter, and uh, an alien spacecraft suddenly flies by him. He shoots the spacecraft out of the sky, and we learn that this is the uh, the spacecraft that held Abin Sur of the Green Lantern Corps. Now, in the in, in the actual Hal Jordan origin, Abin Sur crash landed on Earth. He was already. You know, he's coming from a battle. He was escaping the, and he crash lands on Earth. And as he's dying, he gives Hal Jordan the ring. But in this version, Hal Jordan is the one that shot him out of the sky. He's come to Earth to, to help teach the citizens of the planet, to help them, to help us on Earth ascend to the next level and not destroy ourselves. And of course, the first thing that happens to him when he arrives on Earth is he's shot down by the military. And so Hal Jordan goes to investigate the wreckage. He finds the, the, the alien dying. Uh, Abin Sur explains to him, you know, why he was there. And he tells him, "I am dying, and there is no time to find a replacement. You must take the ring from which our power flows." Hal puts the ring on, and he says, "But I'm not worthy." And Abin Sir tells him, "No, you're not. But you are here." And so, in the in in the original, you know, the the actual Green Lantern origin, the ring sought Hal Jordan. You know, he crash lands on Earth, and it's like, find someone who is worthy to wear the ring and it takes him to Hal Jordan. And in this case, it's just a coincidence. how, how just happens to be there. So the president of the United States, uh, orders, a, a nuclear strike on, on Russia and the missiles are launched and Superman, um, stops the missiles. You know, he, he, uh, destroys them as, as they're, you know, streaking across the sky. And you actually learn that he doesn't destroy them all, but he, he, he doesn't allow any of them to, to, to hit their targets. He, um, is able to, any of them that he doesn't destroy, he grabs the rest up and he ends up hiding on the moon. Luther learns that um, the, uh, the American nuclear strike didn't go through for some reason. He is about to send somebody up to launch the second hydrogen bomb he has. And uh, that's when Batman or Bruce Wayne comes in. And again, he's wearing kind of a suit. It, it's not a suit of armor. It's not like the Iron Man armor. He does have like an armored helmet and an armored chest plate, but the rest of it is, is, is all cloth. Um, but it's very, it, it, it's like if Iron Man was Batman, that's kind of the feeling you get from this. Uh, but, uh, Bruce Wayne arrives at the bunker and beats everybody up and, and grabs Luther and, and takes him in for, uh, justice. And so Luther's arrested. He is charged with 2 million counts of murder. He will probably, um, never see the light of day. They don't, they don't say what his punishment is, but back then he, he was probably put to death. I don't know. I'm sure we'll find out as this series continues. Um, after stashing the uh, American nuclear arsenal on the moon, he goes home to Smallville and his dad asks him, I guess you had something to do with the fact that we're not all radioactive globules. And Clark says, maybe. And he says, I need to believe that this meant something, that it's not all hopeless. But tomorrow it could start all over again, or something else will destroy the planet. Sometimes it feels like we're trying to outrun our own shadow. It just feels stupid to imagine that I can strap on a cape, fly around, and keep the shadow at bay. Jonathan says, well, maybe so. But then maybe hope is just what we call the stupidity we need. And uh, we shoot forward a month. Wonder Woman has um, addressed the nation or the world at the United Nations building, she has come from Paradise Island, and uh, Bruce Wayne has funded the building of the Hall of Justice. And then we meet the the Justice League as the book ends, which is uh, Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, and Green Lantern. And uh, there's a moment here where where Clark's talking to Batman, and he goes, "They call you Batman, really?" And Bruce says, "It's the ears." And uh, Lois we get Lois's, uh, the, the the final part, this whole part is being told through uh, an, an article from Lois Lane. And she says, because no one saves the world by themselves, she says, not knowing who these heroes were, the public started coming up with its own names for them. But what we call them doesn't matter. The important thing is that they're here. So I guess if we're to to read this book and try to understand just from the first issue, what Clark's role, what Superman's role is in in the DC universe, he's a He's a symbol for hope. He's a symbol for uh, standing up for what's wrong. And he's kind of the one that brings the Justice League together. And in the end, while this was more focused on Clark, was more focused on Superman than uh, the other heroes, We this was almost a, uh, a, a more of a, a, a Justice League origin. It was the origin of Superman, the origin of Batman, the origin of Green Lantern, and the origin of the Justice League kind of all thrown into one. It just focused more on Superman. It was, it was a a really good issue. Again, it's 80 pages long. It's a bit, it's a bit, uh, spendy, but, um, for me, it was well worth it. Uh, the, the art was amazing. Uh, that is, if you're a fan of Mike Allred, I know people who aren't, they don't, they don't get why folks like Mike Allred. And, uh, but, but I do, I dig him. I dig his art. It's kind of got that pop modern, uh, pop art feel to it of, uh, um, you know, it feels like the golden age uh, with a more modern sensibility. And the story, I don't know that I've read anything from Mark Russell before. This may be the first book I've ever read from Mark Russell, but it was, I think it was handled very well. Um, once I started reading this book, I could not put it down. It, it really, it, it, it didn't take me too awful long to read 80 pages. It flowed very well. The story was told very well. I loved the uh, separating everything into um, Lois and her narrating through news articles and Clark and him narrating through his journals. Um, I really like the emphasis they kind of put on Lois and how she was, uh, you know, I I think at one point here in the issue, uh, Clark does say in his journal, um, there was a certain moment where he realized that he had fallen in love with Lois. But a lot of it was because of the respect that he had for her as a journalist and as a person. And he refers to her at least once, maybe a couple of times, as a hero. And I think it's when she's leaving to go to the blast site when uh, Coast City is is taken out that, you know, that's when he kind of realizes, actually, let me go back to that part. Because that, you know, up to that point, everything with Clark was wait and watch and prepare, don't put on the suit. Don't make yourself public. Don't go out and save the world until you feel you're ready. And when Coast City is wiped out and Perry tells Lois, I need you to cover the story about Coast City now. And she says, what about Coast City? And he says, it's, there, there isn't one anymore. And so then we pick up with Clark's journal as he, is, he, is, uh, he stops her before she leaves and tells her to be careful. But in his journal, he's saying, of all the people in my life, no one has taught me more about heroism than Lois Lane. That being a hero is not about doing something spectacular. That it's not about being strong or smart or having powers that others don't. Heroism is simply the act of being where you are needed the most. And I think that one line there: heroism is simply the act of being where you are needed the most. And that's that's Superman. He's always, you know, if if you uh, the 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 big theme in Superman comics, at least. You know, those of you who who know that I that I also host a a, a podcast called The Superman Super Show, and we're reading uh, Superman in the Golden Age. That this is I, I I'm not versed in Superman from the Golden Age or even the Silver Age. I, I picked up Superman in '86 uh, when John Byrne rebooted him, um, but from that point on, the main theme in the Superman comics was Superman was there when you needed him. He was always there. He was always where he needed to be. You know, he, he can't handle every problem around the world, but he always seemed to be where he was needed most. And he understood that he couldn't be everywhere at once and that he had to rely on others. And he was okay with that. He, he did what he needed to do when he could do it. Uh, he understood that he had limitations and that, that one line I think sums up for this issue exactly who Superman is. Um, and why he, you know, why he is just such a great character. A lot of people can't get past the fact that he is the, you know, super powerful and, you know, he's, he's completely unrelatable because nothing can stop him. And that's that's not really the case with Superman. There's there's always somebody out there that's going to be able to uh, stop Superman. What 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 makes Superman always come out on top is not because he's super powerful. It's because he has the will and the determination to see right done, period. You know, if he did not have that, he probably would have lost a number of times. But uh, yeah, this was a great series. I'm sure I'll get the others. I don't know how many there are. And I say it was a great series, but what I mean, it was a great issue because we just have the one and it's bi-monthly. So this came out in July. So the next one won't come out until September. Um, So that's kind of nice. I mean, they could have done it at 40 pages for half the price monthly, but I'm happy with this. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the format. I thought it was a great story. I'm assuming the next issue will be in the seventies. Uh, they have a, uh, preview. They, they show the cover for the second issue and Batman, for example, is in more of a traditional Batman outfit. It shows the justice league on the front and it's actually, uh, it looks like the flash has joined them. So it's Superman, the flash, wonder woman, Batman and green lantern. And again, Batman is in more of a traditional Batman outfit. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading more because obviously based on the the way this book opened and Superman's conversation with Pariah, we're going from the 60s into the 80s throughout this series to uh, the world ending during the crisis on infinite earths. And because this is an alternate telling, because this is an alternate universe, um, I'm really, really pumped to see how they do that, how they, how they, uh, how they resolve that whole thing. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this wraps up. Um, I feel like because this book, this issue was in the 60s, um, that because the crisis is happening in the 80s, that this may be three issues. Issue one is the 60s, issue two is the 70s, and issue three is the 80s. But we'll see. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I'm sure the information's out there. I just don't feel like looking it up. Uh, but I will definitely continue with this series, and I'll come back and talk about it when I read the second issue. But until then, folks, I got to wrap this up. This has been a pretty long episode uh, because it was a long issue and I had a lot of things to say about it. And uh, I'm really, really quite happy with it. When when I saw the article on one of the comic book news websites that, um, that this book was coming out that... You know the, the thing I focused on most was that Mike Allred was doing Superman. He's done Superman before. During his days on Madman, he did a, a crossover event with DC Comics called the the Madman-Superman Hullabaloo, in which Madman and Superman uh, crossed over in a, a three-issue series, I think it was. And we'll be talking about that eventually as I go through the Madman comics here on Just Another Fanboy. But again, this has gone on long enough, folks. So until I get to all that, my name is Steven, and I'm Just Another Fanboy. Be nice to each other.
0: Bye, Daddy. Bye, bye, Daddy.
1: Good job. Meet, (coughs) meet Clark Kent, a young reporter. Meet, meet Clark. Blah blah. Meet Clark Kent, a young reporter. Meet Clark Kent, a young.